Oh, amen, amen. Well, first of all, thank you to our wonderful musicians for leading. Thank you to my brother-in-law for leading us in that uh, time of confession. Man, what a sweet and wonderful time that is to just fall at the feet of Jesus, to cast ourselves upon his grace and mercy, and can't help but be moved by that. Just so thankful for God and his provision of Christ Jesus for each of us. So to each of you that are here this morning, thank you for attending this gathering of Christ Covenant Fellowship. For those that may not know me, my name is Brandon Reed, and I have the honor and privilege and great duty of being the associate pastor here. I'm very thankful for that opportunity, thankful for the gathering this morning, the opportunity to share God's word. So before we get started, though, I just I want to take a moment and pray. Ask God to bless our time through the teaching of his word and that he would be glorified in this moment. Let us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, you are glorious, you are good, and there are none like you. You alone are worthy of our praise. Heavenly Father, as we gather together this morning, we ask that you would be magnified, that you would be pleased by all that's said and done here today. Father, as I have this incredible task of opening your word and sharing it with your people, God, this is something I'm not qualified to do. I could never speak to the glory that you actually deserve. So, Father, I ask that you would move during this time. God, I am begging you to intervene in this space for apart from you being at work, apart from you doing the work of turning hearts to you, my speaking is in vain. It's empty. It means nothing. So God, I ask that you would do the supernatural right now, that you would bring sinners to repentance. Those who don't believe, you would bring them to a place of belief in the Savior, Jesus Christ. And your name would be a, a praised, would be praised above everything else in this time. Use me for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. So. We are in our third week on our series in the Reformation and the five solas. If you were here last week, then I had the opportunity to preach on our first sola, which was sola gratia, which means grace alone. So last week we briefly discussed the motivation behind the Reformation movement. If you recall, it was at a time during the 16th century where the church was at this really pivotal point. The church was in danger. It was already beginning to stray away from orthodox biblical teaching. See, there were those within the church who were teaching things that didn't align with the truths of scriptures. And the biggest debate, the biggest controversy that arose during that time was this question. How is a man saved? How can a man be justified before God? So last week we began by discussing this reality of God's grace, and what we found is that we are saved by grace alone. And of course, we spent time looking in uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Specifically, we looked at chapter 2, verse 8, and it says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Now, I want you to hold on to that verse. I want you to pin that because we're going to come back to that in a little while. But what that text basically teaches us is essentially what the reformers were desperately trying to communicate to the church at large. 
that salvation is a gift only extended to us by God's grace. There is nothing we could ever do to force God's hand or to put him in a position where he owes you anything. So God even extending the offer of salvation to sinful humanity is all an act of his grace, his mercy, and his love. It is God exercising his great and infinite providence. It is God acting out of his divine nature. See, brothers and sisters, God saving sinners is not a response to our goodness or even to our faith. It is God being faithful to himself and being committed to his own glory and his divine character. There's nothing we could do to earn it. There's nothing we could do to deserve it. There's nothing we could do to bring it about. God graciously invites sinners into relationship with himself. So that is just simply a brief summation of our discussion on grace alone from last week. Now, for some of you that may have been here last week, I don't want you to get the wrong impression. Just because there's nothing that we can do to merit or earn our salvation, while it's true that we cannot force God's hand, that does not mean that we have no responsibility as it pertains to this matter. We are not to simply sit on our hands and wait for God to work. In fact, it's quite the contrary. I would argue, and I believe that I'm not alone in this, while we do have no means and no ability to bring about our salvation, we do indeed have a responsibility to respond to God's offer of salvation. So we must ask ourselves, okay, what is the right response to this great and glorious God who so graciously extends the invitation to salvation? How do we respond to that? And the short answer is faith in Jesus Christ. Or in other words, believing the gospel. Believing the gospel. You see, last week we talked about salvation by grace alone. This week we'll move to our second sola, which is sola fide, which means faith alone. Faith alone. Again, this idea was crafted by the Reformers after turning to the pages of Scripture At an incredibly critical and important time of the church, and I stressed this last week, we in the 21st century are at an incredibly critical and important time in the church as well. You see, during the 16th century for the Roman Catholic Church, people had begun to wander, right? They began to stray, again, from orthodox biblical teaching, particularly as it pertains to the doctrine of justification, Now, contrary to what many people might believe, the Roman Catholic Church did indeed teach that sinners were justified by faith. That was indeed one of their teachings. However, they denied the belief that faith alone was sufficient for a man's justification. Instead, what they taught it, it must be faith plus works, plus penance, plus confession, plus giving. It was a faith plus theology. They denied the idea that faith alone is what justifies a man. And once again, the reformers, after turning to the scriptures, found that men are justified before God through faith alone in Christ Jesus alone. Amen? Amen. There is nothing to be added to our salvation. Not good works, 
No amount of penance, not the sacraments, not church attendance or regular trips to the confessional. Just as salvation is extended to us by grace alone, we lay hold to this salvation through faith alone. So as we discuss this idea today, this is we our discussion is this idea of sola fide, salvation through faith alone. I think it is appropriate to begin by asking and answering this question. What is faith? I think that's an important starting point for us today. Answering the question, what is faith? So we're going to go to a verse that I'm sure everyone in here, or at least most of you, are familiar with. Hebrews 11, verse 1. You can turn there if you want. That's not totally where we're going to be anchored this morning. I'm going to be jumping around to several different passages of Scripture, but we'll start here as we define what is faith? Hebrews 11.1, 1, and this is what it says. Again, most of you are probably familiar with this. Now, faith is, uh, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, this is a popular verse. This is a verse that people quote all the time. It seems to be the go-to verse within evangelical circles whenever the topic of faith arises. However, I feel like this is a verse that can be pretty confusing to a lot of people. It's not very clear or not very helpful to a lot of people. It's often misapplied. It's often misunderstood. So what I want to do is offer a little clarity here. I want us to look at this verse and examine it briefly as we define what is faith. So in this verse, it says things hoped for, right? Well, what are things hoped for and the things not seen? Does this mean that faith is just some blind leap? Does it mean that faith is simply a shot in the dark? Is faith trusting in or hoping for something that you're uncertain about? Is faith blind? Is it acting on an unassured reality? You know, a lot of times as Christians, as those who would certainly claim to have faith in Christ Jesus, we look at faith that way, don't we? I mean, have you heard the analogy that faith is like a set of stairs, right? And you can't see the next step, but you just go ahead and take it anyway because you're just trusting in God, right? I'm sure we've all heard that analogy. People will often point to this verse to support those types of analogies or those illustrations. Or maybe you've heard somebody, a believer, say, uh, use phrases like a leap of faith or phrases like blind obedience, Right? Now, although those are very popular phrases, the Bible does not speak about faith in that way. Brothers and sisters, faith in Jesus Christ is not a blind leap. It's not shutting down all of your inhibitions and just flinging yourself upon the next step and just hoping that it's there. It's not simply just hoping that what you don't see is an actual reality. It's not wishing upon a star and holding tightly to some unsettled or uncertain hope that you might have. Man, I've certainly heard faith described this way by Christians. I mean, I, and I get it, man. I get what people mean when they use phrases like leap of faith, right? I mean, we are, after all, trusting what we don't say. I mean, even the text right here says things not seen, right? I mean, as those living in the 21st century, we didn't have the luxury of walking with Jesus. We didn't get to see Christ. We didn't live in the time of Noah, so God didn't speak to us directly like Noah or Abraham or some of these other individuals that we read about in the Bible. We don't have that luxury, but guess what? We do have this, and this is how God speaks to us now. 
So I get it. We didn't have the luxury of walking with Jesus like the disciples did who got to see his miracles and who got to sit under his teaching. But guess what? They still had to exercise a measure of faith as well. They had to trust that Jesus was actually who he claimed to be. See, the whole point of this is that faith isn't blind. It's acting upon what we know to be true. That's what faith is, acting on what we know to be true. And while we're on the subject of what faith isn't, faith is not a magical set of powers at work that you can summon up anytime you want God to do whatever you want him to do. That's not what faith is, right? Consider the word of faith movement, right? The name it, claim it doctrine, right? That you can just speak something into existence. You can think about it really hard. And if you have enough faith, God will just do it for you. Man, while that sounds great, that is not biblical or legitimate God-given faith. That is not the biblical faith that saves. That sounds wonderful, but that is simply not true. This is not how that works. This is not how any of that works. That's not biblical faith. Your words do not have the power to call anything into fruition simply because you have enough faith. It's not according to the scriptures. Another common misunderstanding about faith is this. Other people's faith in Christ Jesus will save you, right? So maybe you grew up in a household of faith where your parents knew the Lord, or maybe your grandparents had a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Guess what? That doesn't count for you. Their faith will not save you. We must personally come to know Jesus Christ. We must have our own personal relationship with him. We must have saving faith with Jesus Christ on a personal level. I want you to think about the encounter with Jesus from Matthew chapter 16. And you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read this for you. And this is what it says. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say that you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. And Jesus said to, him, said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? See, others may have believed that Jesus was the Christ. Others may have believed that he was the Savior and Messiah, but Jesus says, who do you say that I am? You see, the faith and belief of others, the faith and belief that others have in Christ does not count to you. That is not attributed to you. What matters is what you make of Jesus Christ. Have you personally confessed him as Lord and Savior? See, and this has eternal implications. This is the greatest question that you could stop and ask yourself right now or ask another individual. This has eternal implications. We have to understand the magnitude of being able to answer this question. Who is Jesus to you? So I want to stop everybody in here right now, and I want to tell you to ask yourself that question. Who is Jesus to me? Is he my Lord and Savior? Have I surrendered my life to him? Or is he just a really wonderful historical figure, a really good moral instructor, a guy I can live by some of his rules because he's, he's a great teacher? That's not faith in Jesus Christ. Do you have your own personal saving relationship with Christ Jesus? See how you answer the question, who is Jesus, is going to decide where you rest for eternity. It matters. It matters. So ask yourself, who, who is Jesus to me? Have I come to saving faith in Christ? Again, faith in Jesus Christ is not a blind leap. 
Okay, so we understand that. It's not a shot in the dark. It's not a blind leap. It's not some magic genie in the bottle type of belief that I can summon up every time I need something. We also understand that the faith of other people is not accounted to us as righteousness, right? That doesn't save, that doesn't justify. So now we must ask ourselves, okay, then what is real faith? What is real, genuine, biblical faith? Well, in order for us to truly understand what saving faith is, let's focus on one word right here in Hebrews 11.1, and it's the word assurance. Assurance. You see, the Greek word that is used here for assurance is hypostasis, H-Y-P-O-S-T-A-S-I-S, hypostasis. Now, this is the same word that the writer of Hebrews also uses in chapter 3, verse 14. And this is what it says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. Did you hear it? Confidence. That's the word. So the word confidence that's used in that verse is the same word, hypostasis, that's used for assurance in chapter 11, verse 1. So this really helps us to have a clear picture of what faith actually means. Rather than being a blind leap, faith is birthed from a level of assurance or certainty. So when the author of Hebrews speaks of things hoped for, those are things we hope for and place our faith in. These are the promises of God given to us through the Holy Scripture. So listen, here's a great point to perk up and get your pen ready. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. This is a biblical definition of faith. Faith is a confident assurance in the biblical promises and person of God. If you are taking notes, please write that down. If you don't hear anything else that I say this morning, please hold on to that. Faith is a confident assurance in the biblical promises and the person of God. Guess what? Those, those uh, promises meet their climax in the person and work of Jesus Christ. They meet their climax in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, Christ is our greatest confidence. He is our rock-solid assurance. That is our hope. We don't have to wonder. It's not flimsy. It doesn't flip-flop. This is rock-solid, 100% assured. Our salvation rests in the work of Jesus Christ. He is God's greatest promise to us, and it's come to fruition. Amen? Amen. Amen. Unfortunately, here's the problem. There are far too many believers who walk around uncertain about their faith, right? They have this weak, flimsy hope on which they cannot stand, failing to realize that their faith is solidified, it's assured, and it's certain because of the eternal, finished work of Christ Jesus, who is the object of their faith. See, that's important right there. That's an important phrase. It is the object of our faith, not the faith itself. Amen? Your faith is only as good as the object that you place it in. A lot of you have faith in those chairs that you're sitting in today, that they're going to hold you. Well, your faith isn't actually exercised till you actually sit down on it and trust in it. I know that's an old school illustration, an old school analogy. I don't really like it that much, but it works for right now. Your faith is solidified because the object of your faith is the perfect Son of God, Jesus Christ. Listen, we are justified through faith in Him. 
And again, it's not because our faith is so great, but because of the all-surpassing worth, glory, and supremacy of the object of our faith that is Christ Jesus, who has accomplished the work of salvation, his death, his burial, his resurrection. All believers, those who by the grace of God have surrendered their lives and placed their faith in Christ Jesus, we are no longer condemned. We're no longer under the burden of judgment or wrath. Listen, we talked about this a little bit last week. Because of what Christ has accomplished, we are free. We are redeemed. We are liberated. We are now justified. See, Christ has taken our sin and we've been attributed his righteousness. This is what we call the great exchange, right? God treats Christ as sin. He absorbs the wrath of God, so God's wrath and his holy judgment are satisfied. Guess what? We're imputed. That means we are given, attributed, accounted Christ's righteousness and obedience. What a wonderful and glorious transaction that is for believers. Amen? Amen. Amen. For those that have been born again and have come into saving relationship with Christ, this is a certainty. This is a certainty. What Christ has done on our behalf, we know this to be true. That is faith. Believing that what we read about Christ, even though we cannot see him, faith is believing the gospel according to the Holy Scriptures. Now, I want you to listen to what Paul writes right here in 1 Corinthians 15. This is what Paul writes. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Listen to what Paul's doing here. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth to put to rest any uncertainty, any doubt that they may have about Christ and his resurrection. He says, look, don't just take my word for it. There are a massive amount of witnesses. Go ask them. Go ask them. They've all witnessed this resurrection. They've seen the risen Savior. Christians, brothers and sisters in this room, we do not have a faith that is up in the air or one that is uncertain or one that is established on hearsay. We have a faith that is founded on facts, on which we can rest, on which we can stand. Amen? Amen. So, since that is true, since Christ lived and died and rose again since God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that through him we would be the righteousness of God. What is our response to this news? Our response to this good news is faith in Christ Jesus. To trust in him alone for our salvation. This is what true biblical faith looks like in real time. And it's not simply knowing the gospel, right? This goes beyond a head knowledge. It's not just simply knowing the gospel or knowing what Jesus has done, but it's believing in and resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, knowing that Jesus lived the perfect life for you, 
Knowing that Jesus Christ took to the cross for you. Knowing that Jesus Christ rose again on the third day for you. Knowing that Jesus Christ has gone to prepare a place for you. It is a personal relationship. Trusting in the promises of God that climax, that culminate in the person and work of Jesus Christ for you personally. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that this morning? Faith is believing these promises and holding fast to them. That's faith. That's biblical faith in Jesus Christ. So now that we have an understanding of what faith is and and almost as important, what faith isn't, right? Now that we have that understanding, let's talk about this. Let's answer the next question is, how do I acquire faith? How do I get it? Where does it come from? Right? So in order to understand where faith comes from, I think it's helpful here for us to go back to the verse I read at the very beginning of this message, Ephesians 2, 8. And it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a what? It is a gift of God. A gift of God. So according to this text, like grace, faith is a gift from God. That means that God is the source of our faith. Not you, not me, nowhere else. The source of our faith is almighty creator God. We don't have it in us to manufacture or to muster up these feelings of faith in Jesus Christ. We can never create that in and of ourselves. See, apart from the merciful hand of God being upon us, apart from his divine intervention, we would never believe. We would never come to faith in Jesus Christ. It is God in his sovereign will and by his grace that grants each of us the gift of belief. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ in here this morning, thank God for that gift that he's given to you. Your unbelief has been overridden by God's power. Listen, people don't just wake up one day and choose to believe what they didn't believe yesterday. And God has to do that work. God has to do that work. In fact, Jesus talks about this. Right, specifically in the Gospel of John, if we go to John chapter 6, and again, you don't have to turn there. Jesus is having this discourse, right? He's having this discussion with some of the disciples. And this wasn't strictly the 12. There were those who uh, were amongst this crowd, and they were following Jesus, and they claimed to be believers. But just as is always the case, there are those who say that they're believers, but they didn't actually have real, legitimate faith in Jesus Christ. So Jesus is having this conversation with them. And he's telling them that, hey, I'm the bread of life. You must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood if you want to have eternal life. And there are those within the crowd who are having a hard time reconciling Jesus's words. And it's because their hearts were hardened. It's because they hadn't been regenerated or born again. So they couldn't hear what uh, Jesus was saying. They couldn't hear Jesus's words. And so this is what Jesus says to them in John chapter 6, verses 63 through 65. Jesus says this. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Now notice what Jesus says here. He says, man, the flesh is no help at all. Friends, this is a humble reminder to each of us that the human will has no ability to produce saving faith in Christ Jesus. 
In fact, our flesh, in, in our flesh, we are naturally opposed to God, to Christ, and to the things of the Spirit. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we would just continue in our sin, in our rebellion, and in our unbelief as human beings who are uh, hostile to the gospel. This is why God must be at work. This is why he must graciously give the gift of belief, the gift of faith. You see, the Bible does indeed tell us, yeah, whosoever will, let him come. Right? Whosoever will, let him come. However, it is only those that God has regenerated and given the ability to move toward him that will actually respond to the invitation of salvation. You see, this too serves to kill our pride. We can't even boast about the belief and the faith that we have in Jesus Christ because it doesn't come from us. That faith is graciously granted to us by God the Father. So then the question maybe is how? Maybe that's where you're at. Well, well, how does this happen? How does God draw us in? How is this faith brought about? And the answer is through the faithful proclamation of his word through faithful preaching of the gospel, through sharing Jesus Christ and the word of God with individuals. That's how they, God works through that and they are generated. They're brought from death to life. Let's look at Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 17. I'll just read this really quickly. I think most of you in here may be familiar with this passage as well. Romans 10, verses 14 through 17 says this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Friends, this really underscores the importance of faithful, biblical, Christ-centered preaching. See, there must be a clear presentation of the gospel before there can ever be true, saving faith. It is God working in and through our faithful proclamation that people come to salvation. Right? Now listen, here, here's the important part. I want you to hear this too. This isn't a duty that's exclusively reserved for pastors, ministers, and preachers. It is not simply up to them to bear the burden of gospel proclamation. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you too have been called to go into the nations and to make disciples and to teach them the good news of Jesus Christ. You were called to share the gospel. Yes, we believe that God is sovereign over salvation, but that does not negate our call to evangelize. Listen, we don't have the luxury of being able to read people's minds or to be able to look into their hearts and see where they are in their walk with Jesus Christ. I'm not able to look at a man, look at him inwardly, and see whether he has a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Yes, I can look at the evidence, the fruit that's produced in his life, and I can make a judgment, but I don't know a person just off a look, right? Just off the external, just if I pass a brother on the street, I don't know if he's in right relationship with Jesus Christ. So guess what? What I do know is I need to preach the gospel continuously and consistently to all people, to all people. We don't know if a person's heart might be fertile soil, ready to receive the seed of the gospel. So we must be consistent in our gospel proclamation. Guess what? Even in our evangelical circles. 
right, even amongst those who are saved. Now, you might ask yourself now, why in the world would I continue to preach the gospel to people that are already saved? And I'm I'm just going to turn to my man, John Piper, and let him tell you why. And this is what John Piper says. He says, when we preach the word of God, for those that hear us proclaim the gospel, they're in one of two places. Either their faith is being born or their faith is being preserved. Or their faith is being preserved. So even those of us that claim the name of Jesus Christ, even those of us that have been saved, we need these gospel reminders to continue to grow and mature in our faith. Listen, I know for me personally, I need that every single day. I need that daily. Listen, if you're a person in here and you've outgrown the gospel, if you're at a place where you're so strong in your faith and you're so mature that you don't need the gospel every day, number one, you're probably lying to yourself. Number two, please see me afterwards because I need to know your secret. I need to know how you got there. I'm envious of that. I want to know. Please give me the secret, right? Here's the point of all of this, of everything we're discussing. Here's the point. God is the source of our faith. Faith does not come from man. It is not found in the words or the ideas of man. It is birthed and granted by God through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit and by the preaching of his word. All the credit, all the glory, all the praise, all the honor goes to God. It is due to him. So if we understand what faith is, it's this confident assurance, right? We understand what faith is. We understand that it comes from God and it's given to us in and through Christ Jesus. Now the next natural question might be, well, what in the world does faith do? I know what it is. I know where it comes from. What does faith do? And here's where we'll begin to make a biblical case for the idea of faith alone, sola fide. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 3. We'll spend the rest of our time right here. Romans chapter 3. I'm sure most of you in here are familiar with Paul's letter to the church in Rome, but and if you're in here and you're not, if you're in here and you have not read through the letter to the Romans, man, I want to encourage you to do so. It is a theological masterpiece. Right? Paul addresses everything from our sin and our depravity to our call to submit to our God-ordained authorities. He talks about uh, justification, obviously, which is what we're going to talk about here in just a minute. Like Paul addresses a lot of things in this letter that are helpful for the Christian life. But what I want to focus on right now, because I think it's germane to our conversation, is the doctrine of justification that Paul addresses here in Romans chapter 3, and we'll even look at a little bit of Romans chapter 4 as well. Well, I'm not going to be able to read all of both chapters. That's quite a bit for the sake of time, so we'll just look at a few verses that I think help to build this case of salvation through faith alone. So what I want to do is look at Romans 3, and I'm going to start at verse 20. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, and this is what it says. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, let's just stop right there. We'll stop right there for a moment. 
Now, Paul has spent the better part of these first three chapters making a case that every human being, every man, every woman, every child has sinned and stands condemned before God. He says that none of us are righteous in chapter 3, verse 10. So because of our natural bend towards sin, our tendency to rebel against God, Paul says that a man cannot be justified by the works of the law. We have no ability in us to keep God's law. In fact, what Paul says here in verse 20 is that through the law actually comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law, we realize that we're sinners. We realize that we fall short. We realize that we are incapable. You see, the law, though it was given by God to be this good and gracious thing, it really serves to show us our sin and our depravity. See, the law is like a mirror that constantly reminds us of our imperfections. And God's law is one that is perfection. God's standard is perfection. And there's no way as sinful, limited, finite human beings that are flawed that we could ever reach God's standard. No matter how much good we do, right? You could live a thousand lifetimes. And we could never attain this perfection. We could never keep the law in such a way that God counts us as righteous in his sight. Brothers and sisters, the point is this. We cannot be justified by our works. Again, it doesn't matter how much good you do, feeding the poor, giving clothes to the needy, all of these wonderful works, which are good things that we should do, right? These are things that we should do. However, they are not sufficient for achieving salvation, If we look at verse 21 here in Romans 3, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Hang on to that phrase right there. Consider what that means, apart from the law. That means that justification is entirely separated from our obedience to any law. That is not how we are justified. Now, let me stop right there. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't say this, so please let me add some clarity here. Please let me say this. I am not telling you that you can go out here and live however you want. That's not what I'm saying. Because you're not justified by the law, listen, this is not a hall pass. This isn't go out here and do whatever I want to do. Right? I don't want anybody walking out of here today saying, man, Pastor Brandon told me I didn't have to keep the law and I could do whatever I want and I'm good. That is absolutely not what I am saying. God's word is clear. It clearly calls us to obedience. It clearly calls us to lives of holiness time and time again. I'm just going to read a couple of verses here. This, again, is not an exhaustive list, but the Bible is full of these directives and commands to live in accordance to God's word. Leviticus 20, 26. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. John 14, 15. These are Jesus' words. If you love me, what? Keep my commandments, right? First Peter, 14, uh, First Peter 1, 14 and 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. Sharing the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. So the point is, yes, 
We are not justified by our works. We are not justified by keeping the law. That does not mean you can just live recklessly however you want. Those that are saved and set apart for his glory, we are called to live in obedience to God's word. We are to submit to God's command. However, this reality looms over us daily that we are imperfect, right? That perfect submission to God's word is unattainable for us. Man, praise God for the one that is obedient, for the one that perfectly fulfilled the law of God. And we thank God that his righteousness, that his obedience is accounted to us. And that righteousness, our righteousness is manifested apart from and despite our inability to keep God's law. You see, as Christ was obedient to God the Father, we are also called to live in obedience to him. So I am definitely not saying that obedience doesn't matter. What I'm simply saying is this. You are not justified, or excuse me, you are justified apart from your obedience to the law. You are justified apart from your obedience to the law. Your obedience is not conditional to your salvation. Obedience to the law does not justify you. It is not the means to your salvation. It is simply evidence of it, right? James 2.18 says, show me or I'll show you my faith by my works. What James is showing you there is I've been redeemed. I have been regenerated. I do have faith in Jesus Christ, and I'm showing you that by my good works. In fact, we talked about this a little last week. Those good works were also prepared by God, so he gets the credit for those too right? And that's how we demonstrate faith in Christ. It's just an evidence. Those works are an evidence. They are not salvific themselves. That is one of the things that faith does, though. It shapes the way that we live. So when we ask the question, well, what does faith do? That's one of the answers to it right there. What does faith do? It shapes the way that we live. It shapes the way that we approach those around us. It shapes the way we engage with our relationships, with our family members, our neighbors, our coworkers. It shapes our priorities. Faith shapes the way that we live each and every day. If we look at verse 2, or excuse me, verse 22, Paul says this, The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Listen, for those that believe, it is through our faith in Christ that we are attributed the righteousness of God. So another, if we stop again and we ask ourselves, well, what does faith do? What else does it do? I know it shapes the way we live. What else does faith do? This is the big answer to what faith does. This is what I want you to hear. Faith justifies a man. In fact, let me tighten that up a little bit theologically. Faith in Christ justifies a man. Faith in Christ alone. And I'll give you a few more verses on that in just a minute. But I love what Paul does right here as he's writing. If we continue on in verse 23 to again, Paul reminds us again that there is no distinction, that we've all sinned, so we are all desperately in need of this Savior. We've all fallen short of God's standard. That Paul directs us to the reality of our need for Jesus, of our need for one to justify us outside of ourselves. Right? It comes apart from our works. Verse 24 says, we are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. To what? 
to be received by faith. It is through the gift of faith, friends, that we lay hold to our salvation. I love that Paul starts by first pointing to Jesus, first pointing to Christ as the object of our faith and all that Jesus has accomplished in and through the cross. And then he says that this gift of grace, this sacrifice of Christ on our behalf is to be received by faith. It's not to be received by works. It's not to be received because of your bloodline. Remember, he's made uh, the claim. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. So it's not about bloodline. It's not about your ethnicity. It's not about your status. It's not about your merits or your good works. It's not about anything else. It is to be received by faith in Christ alone. And listen, this is an important point too. It's not even specifically the act of faith in Christ that saves. It is Christ through faith that saves. It is Christ that saves us through our faith in him. It is through his faithful obedience, through his finished work on the cross that we are secured our redemption. Sinners are only justified solely on the merits of Christ Jesus and his righteousness. And it is his righteousness that is imputed to us through faith. Let's look at Romans 3, 26. Verse 26 says that all of this says that God's plan for redemption was to what? To show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, it is God that justifies. It's God that pardons the sinner. And this is all according to his plan, by his power, for his glory. Amen? Amen. See, Paul is really doing the work of hammering home this point. He makes it clear that we cannot be justified through what we do or don't do, but it is through faith in Christ that we are saved. If we look ahead to chapter 4, we're going to get ready to close our time here in just a few minutes. Let's look ahead to chapter 4. Paul continues by giving us this example of Abraham, right? And I love this portion of the letter. I love this example that Paul gives us. So I'm just going to read this quickly. The first three verses, Romans chapter 4, Paul says this, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. I'm sure most of you in here are familiar with the story of Abraham from the Old Testament. We actually, in our men's Bible study, we've been walking through that the last couple of weeks. And, you know, God comes to Abraham and he makes Abraham this promise. And he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to have many offspring, many descendants. But we have to remember is Abraham was an old man and his wife was old too. They had no children. Her womb was barren. So it would have been really easy for Abraham to stand there and say, God, how is this going to happen? How in the world can you make me a great nation? I have no descendants. I have no sons to carry on my name. But God makes this promise to Abraham. And in Genesis 15, 6, which is what Paul quotes here, this is what Abraham says, or this is what it says. It says, and he, and that's talking about Abraham, and he believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. 
And of course, if you know the story, Sarah, uh, Abraham's wife, goes on to give birth to their son, Isaac. And Isaac is the son of promise through which all Abraham's descendants would come. And uh, God would indeed fulfill his promise. He would make Abraham the great nation of Israel. So what I love here is what it says, but also what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that Abraham did anything. It doesn't say that he acted Right away, it doesn't say that Abraham prayed and was counted as righteous. It doesn't say that Abraham built a shrine to the Lord and was counted as righteous. It doesn't say Abraham went anywhere or did anything. It simply says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham's belief, and guess what? Our belief in God, that is us exercising faith. That is what faith is, believing God's promises. The reason why, and this is important, the reason why justification must come by faith alone in Christ alone is so that no one may boast. And Paul points us back to that here in verse 2. He says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Again, this serves to extinguish our pride, to point the glory and praise where it's due to God alone. As we've walked through this conversation and we've talked about this idea of faith alone, maybe it's not clear enough to you. Maybe it's it's not hitting you uh, just yet from these couple of texts that we read. So what I want to do is is point you to where Paul writes about this elsewhere. So I want to read just a couple of verses and then we'll get ready to finish our time. So Paul writes about this elsewhere. So he writes about it in Galatians 2, 16. And this is what he says. He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works, not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. Hang on to that phrase. That's important. He says, so we also have believed. Here again, Paul is equating faith to belief, right? He says, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That's Galatians 2, 16. I think Paul makes that point crystal clear there. But if you need more, let's go to Galatians 3, 11. It says, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Need more? Let's go to Galatians 3, 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we what? might be justified by faith. Finally, what I want to do is point us to a very popular passage of Scripture, also written by the Apostle Paul, and it comes from Philippians 3. You don't have to turn there. I'll read that for us. But this particular portion of Scripture here, Paul includes his own personal testimony. He includes his own accolades, his own accomplishments, his own achievements. He even talks about his ancestry. And at the end, he finds this truth, the same truth that we all must reconcile. Let me read this for us. Philippians 3, verses 3 through 9. Put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Here's the important part. This is what Paul says. After listing all of those accolades and accomplishments, this is what Paul says. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Amen, amen, amen. Righteousness through faith in Christ. It's not within us. It is outside of us. Brothers and sisters, our work could never be enough. All of our good works, all of our best efforts, all of our good deeds are only filthy rags at best, according to Isaiah 64, 6. So we are justified through faith in Christ alone. As we close our time here together this morning, I want to again remind you that adding works to the gospel, making things conditional for our salvation only compromises the gospel message. In fact, it doesn't just compromise the gospel. It's in a different gospel entirely. It is a different gospel entirely. It is not faith plus works. It's not faith plus confession. It's not faith plus giving or anything else you can add to faith or add to Christ. We are saved through faith alone, in Christ alone. Friends, this should be good news to us, right? It's not based on what we do. It's not based on how much faith we possess. Man, if you're like me, this is wonderful news this morning because I know my faith lacks at time. I know I struggle and I fail. I know I mess up. I know I make mistakes, but, mistakes, but praise God for his grace and his mercy. I am thankful that it doesn't hinge upon what I do. I'm thankful that the burden doesn't rest on my shoulders. I'm thankful that I'm not saved by how much faith I can muster up. But it is the object of my faith, the perfectly obedient son of Christ Jesus that secures my salvation and my redemption. And I praise God for that reality this morning. Praise God that our faith is in another and not in our own works. Thank God for his grace and his mercifully imputing the righteousness of Christ to sinful men. Listen, brothers and sisters, just as we looked a few moments ago to the example of Abraham, and we know that Abraham believed in the covenant promises of God. Listen, we have God's written and revealed word at our fingertips daily. God has given us his holy word. He has given us the scriptures. And guess what? It's filled with promises to believers It is filled with promises to you and I. You see, exercising the measure of faith given to us by God simply means believing what's written right here in this book. It means holding fast to the promises that God has given us. That greatest promise is Christ Jesus. Faith means believing in his sacrifice and his sufficiency. Not faith in ourselves. not Not faith in the world. Not faith in our country not faith in mankind, not faith in our political parties, not faith in our ideas, not faith in any of those things, but simply faith in Christ Jesus, the all-sufficient, all-satisfying Son of God. He is enough. So I want to encourage you to trust in Jesus for your salvation today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we've had together, for being able to gather and fellowship and sing your praises.
God, we are so thankful for the reminder that it is through faith alone, nothing that we do, nothing that we have to achieve or accomplish, but it is freely given to us by your grace and your mercy. You've offered your only son for our redemption, for our forgiveness, and we are justified through him. God, we thank you for that reality this morning. God, I pray for any of those sitting in here today under the sound of my voice that may be uh, resting on other things for their salvation. They may be looking elsewhere. They may have put their faith in other individuals or other objects. God, I pray that they would repent, that they would turn from those things and look to Christ Jesus again and again and again. It is only you that can save God, we are thankful for that reality today. Help us to exercise the measure of faith that's been given to us, to believe the promises written to us and given to us in your revealed word, and that that would shape the way that we live each and every day. We would live for your glory, to the praise of the name of Jesus Christ. Help us to honor you in all things. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.